Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. Badia Ahad Lagardi, who is the author of the book Afro Nostalgia Feeling Good in Contemporary Black Culture, published by the University of Illinois Press. Dr. Ahad Lagardi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk to you about your book, Afro Nostalgia, which is your second book. And your first book was Freud Upside Down, African-American Literature and Psychoanalytic Culture. And so your work is tied together um, through what seems to be a theme of uncovering affective sentiments that are generally overlooked in regard to the interiority of African-Americans. How do you come to this research theme and how did you come to write Afro Nostalgia? Sure. So to be to be honest, Reagan, I cannot remember a time when I actually was not interested in kind of black emotional life. And so that really was the um, impetus of Freud upside down. So really kind of thinking about how psychoanalysis was um, so important in the lives of African Americans from the earliest early 20th century onward. Um, So I've always really just been fascinated in kind of Black interiority. But in terms of Afro-nostalgia in particular, um, I would say that something that I really wanted to talk about in my second book was, I don't know if it was just because I was feeling generally overwhelmed (laughs) with... um, sentiments of kind of grief, uh, personal and societal, um, just feeling that there was so much emphasis and focus on Black violence and Black trauma. And a lot of my thinking around this book was really um, happening around the first iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, following the, the tragic death of Trayvon Martin. And, you know, I really just wanted to use 
my writing and my research as a reprieve uh, from all of that and to really um, highlight just another aspect of Black cultural, social, psychological, emotional life that had not really been explored. And that was really around um, sentiments of joy. So uh, that led me to nostalgia <laughs> and uh, in a kind of a circular way. But um, what we now know about nostalgia is that it's actually a sentiment that really does um, instill and generate feelings of joy and happiness. And it's, it's often used as a coping mechanism to, you know, really deal with traumatic past events and also events in, in the present. And so it was really kind of an apt concept to explore at that particular time. And for better or for worse, it, it seems like a concept that is, is really resonant now. Yeah, definitely. Um, nostalgia has emerged as a very powerful, um, <laughs> you know, I don't an affect, I guess, in this, that we're, we're all paying attention to in this particular moment. Yeah. Um, and so your central like concept of the book is, which is the title of the book is Afro Nostalgia. And I wanted to ask you if you could um, like describe this, describe your idea. And so I'm going to just quote you. You write on page 20 that Afro-nostalgia provides intellectual and affective ground from which to imagine new ways of Black being, Black doing, and Black feeling that enable flourishing under adverse social and political circumstances. So I was wondering if you could expand on this and describe your idea of Afro-nostalgia. Sure. So I really wanted to posit nostalgia as a formative aspect of Black life. Um, and Black experience, right? Um, something that I talk about in the book a lot, and I think when even people refer to the book, they refer to that kind of historical tidbit that um, nostalgia, uh, or that in the 18th century, it was thought that Black people could not experience nostalgia, right? That we didn't possess the effective capacity um, to really experience that emotion, which I found really fascinating. And then in the book, I actually talk about um, Zadie Smith and I think it was her NPR interview in which she described nostalgia or historical nostalgia in particular as something that was simply unavailable uh, to Black people. But, you know, because I do a lot of work with uh, emotions and affect and psychology, uh, I knew it was really clear to me that nostalgia really is a feel-good emotion, right? So recent psychological studies have shown that nostalgia is really a great mechanism for coping. It's also a great mechanism for healing. And when I think about just the trajectory of Black life, you know, what would it mean to simply have nostalgia as something that is unavailable? To us, right? And so rather than kind of thinking about it that way, I was really invested in just looking at how contemporary Black artists were actually engaging um, with the past in a way that I regarded as nostalgic, right? So in a way that wasn't, you know, trauma-laden or uh, one that wasn't really kind of framed through that particular lens, but really these um, just kind of looking at 
the ways in which these explorations of the Black historical past were taken up as a way to really instantiate good feelings. And so um, that was really kind of key, I guess, in the rather eclectic archive that I was producing um, in this book. And so kind of really thinking about how does nostalgia allow us to kind of cope with the difficult, um, as I, I guess, I, as I said in the book, social and political circumstances of the moment, um, and to what end could that be, be put, right? So when we think about um, kind of historical or conventional understandings of nostalgia, it really kind of gets a bad rap <laughs> because it's, it's seen as kind of an impotent emotion, like, okay, so you retreat to the past, you hang out there, uh, it may make you feel good in the moment, but it doesn't really do anything. And so I wanted to show that I that nostalgia actually has um, the ability to really inform not just our own kind of psychological lives in, in the way of well-being, but also like how that translates in a broader kind of social and political sense. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I was, I thought that I found that really interesting in the book when you talked about, um, and you just mentioned it now, how uh, there are these kind of like white psychological beliefs that black people didn't experience nostalgia. Um, and so you also distinguish Afro nostalgia from sort of other ideas of like white nostalgia, which like seeks to recover an exclusionary past and like one might think about these current uh, debates about monuments and and who should be commemorated um, with these ideas about nostalgia, these like dominant ideas about nostalgia. Um, so how do you distinguish Afro nostalgia against these other, other ideas about racialized ideas about nostalgia? Sure. So um, in terms of, you know, nostalgia, I always like to say that it's, it's a complicated concept, right? But it's also a complicated emotion because it could really, you know, I talked about the extent to which it could be used for good, (laughs) but I think we've also seen a lot of examples, especially within the last four years of how nostalgia can um, have really grave implications, right? So when we even think about something like the mantra you know, make America great again, right? Mm-hmm. That is really a nostalgic um, invocation of, I would say, white historical violence, right? So this idea that um, we want to return to this past that really just exists in the imaginary, right? And it's really meant to um, exclude, but it's also meant to really kind of create conditions of... Um, uh, violence in, in many respects, right? Um, physical and otherwise. And so when I th- when you think about nostalgia, uh, not only in that sense, but I would even point to uh, Michelle Boyd's concept of Jim Crow nostalgia, right? The, the idea that, you know, there was this really glorious time of segregation <laughs> when, you know, there were these flourishing black businesses and, you know, black janitors live next door to black doctors, you know, and it's really this kind of memory that is produced through acts of historical erasure, right? In really dangerous ways. So, you know, we're not trying to kind of recapture 
the past as it's imagined and that kind of make America great again moment. And we're also not trying to <laughs> recapture the past in a way that is um, articulated through these kind of visions of uh, this, you know, glorious Jim Crow uh, uh, era that really um, obscures, you know, the kind of state sanctioned violence that created those conditions to begin with, right? So the way that I would distinguish Afro-nostalgia from those more dangerous and kind of violent forms of nostalgia is to say that um, it's not a sentiment that is rooted in erasure. It's not a sentiment that really relies upon um, this kind of violent forgetting of the past, but it's really one that I would say is using the past as a resource, using the past as a framework to imagine a very different kind of possibility for the future. And I would say that one of the largest or biggest misconceptions about nostalgia is that it's a sentiment that is solely tied to the past. And really, nostalgia is a sentiment that is actually very invested in the future. And so that's the piece that I really wanted to kind of capture and hold on to for this work and and to really highlight how Black cultural producers now were kind of drawing upon historical memory and kind of historical scenes of the past in order to really think about new possibilities for the future. And that was what was really exciting to me about at least kind of my framing or my conception of Afro nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so, that's so important. Um, When I'm going to share a little story as a segue to the next question where um, your idea of Afro nostalgia, when you were talking about how the past is unavailable to, to African-Americans, it made me think about when I was younger, when I was in like the fifth grade, I remember reading Gone with the Wind and (laughs) my mom made this comment to me, where she said, well, you know, if you were, if we were alive during those times, you wouldn't be Scarlett O'Hara, you know, you would be a person. And it just, and I remember it totally changed how I, how I engaged with that book. And I think I was probably caught up in some of the romance. And I think my mom saw that and she just sort of cut it off at the past. And it made me think like, you know, of what you were saying, where you're right, like the past is not always available as this like feeling of, uh, of, you know, of, of producing good feelings. So, um, yeah, I thought that that demonstrated your concept, uh, just in my, in my own experience. And then it takes me to the first chapter of the book, because that's where you talk about slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in each chapter, you know, you talk about, you know, you, you break down Afro nostalgia according to these different, uh, characteristics, but in chapter one, you talk about what you call nostalgic retribution in relationship to new narratives about slavery. And, um, and they have this emphasis on the agency of the enslaved and they seek justice for the enslaved um, by recreating stories about them. Um, and I, I really liked when you had this discussion of this uh, program called Ask a Slave, but you, know, you also have other novels like The Good Lord Bird. Um, and so the question, so how did this, how did this contemporary cultural production um, that you looked at uh, you know, refer to slavery and ex- and exhibit nostalgic retribution. Sure. So I think 
for that chapter, what I really wanted to do was participate in a broader conversation around contemporary narratives of slavery, um, which, you know, if I am hard pressed, I would say that <laughs> that seems to be kind of the defining genre of contemporary Black literature, broadly speaking, that there are so many um, historical uh, novels that, that kind of harken back to that moment. And now we are seeing this, I think, more and more even in popular culture. So, you know, I, I know that Good Lord Bird, for example, is now like a, a Showtime miniseries or something like that. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, but I also know that, you know, Colson Whitehead's The Underground, Underground Railroad mm-hmm. um, was just, you know, produced into uh, a series as well, I think, for, for Amazon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it seems like, you know, these retreats, if you will, to the past are um, becoming increasingly popular, um, not just as a literary form, but obviously as kind of um, other other media. And, you know, just, I guess for me, I was really thinking about as a broader genre, what purpose do these narratives serve, right? And because there's so many of them, right? So why is there this really um, big, I, I would say, push or kind of a cultural imperative to return to that moment and to what end? Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously there have been a lot of good books essays, you know, written by people much smarter than myself um, <laughs> about this kind of unreconciled um, relationship to the past, right? And, and really these texts function as a, you know, way of kind of grappling with this unfinished past, right? The, the fact that we're still seeing or kind of contending with the traumatic resonances of uh, the transatlantic slave trade now in, in so many ways ways. But there's also another kind of element to these narratives that, you know, had not been fully fleshed out, at least in my in my view, which was the sense that um, there was a social justice project happening in these books, and there's the sense of wanting to um, frame these narratives as a form of recompense or redress. Um, And so that is really what sparked this idea of kind of nostalgic retribution, right? So, you know, when we're kind of returning to this historical past, and I think I mentioned this in the book, it's not about returning to that past as it was, right? Um, I really wanted to kind of think about these returns to the past as what could have been or what might have been. Um, and by and just thinking about the ways in which these novels in particular um, work to shift hierarchies of power in particular ways, the ways in which they portray uh, the enslaved characters in, in the book as agents in many respects, even though they may be in physical bondage, but the way in which they negotiate that and kind of navigate power and assert that sometimes through like 
a very, con- what seems to me to, to be a very contemporary voice, like Ask a Slave, um, and in ways that seek to do justice, if you will, um, for those persons who may not have had um, the voice or the power to seek it for themselves um, in, in those moments. And so something I talk about in that chapter is how, you know, this isn't, you know, akin to Michelle Obama's kind of, you know, when, when they go low, you go high, but it's really about, you know, how um, these authors are invoking humor, how they're invoking different kind of rhetorical strategies as a way to give voice and to give power and agency and autonomy um, to these characters as an act of, of um, retributive justice. So that's really kind of what, what that chapter is all about. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I've, I just started watching the Underground Railroad as well. How is it? Uh, I thought it was, it's really good. It's, it's really good. Um, I've, I've been enjoying it. I've only done seen the first two. So right. but, I, I have, um, I have to kind of force myself to watch, uh, film or television versions of books that I've read. <laughs> so I, I, I always feel like, is this going to be as good as the book? Because it never really is, but I've heard good things. So I, I will check it out. But um, I always feel like I'm setting myself up for disappointment whenever I'm watching like the film version of like a book that I've read. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. I, I, I haven't read the book, so I need to now I want to read the book. So <laughs> well, you know what happens? You read a book and as you're reading, you know, you've already be, you know, begun the process of uh, visualizing the characters and they they speak a certain way, they look a certain way. And then when, you know, the, the film or the television show comes out, they don't look anything like the characters as they existed in your head when you were reading. So that's always kind of, at least to my mind, why the book is, I mean, why the movie or the television show is never as good as the book. But I, I know that uh, Barry Jenkins is a very talented uh, director. So I'm assuming that um, that justice was done in, in that case. So I'll, I will check it out. No, for sure. And and yeah, and like speaking of the, of the visual, um, I wanted to ask you also about the cover of the book because it is really beautiful. And um, it's a collage by the artist Krista Franklin, and it aligns with your discussion in chapter three, which is on nostalgic regeneration and the work of uh, three Black female artists, April Banks, Krista Franklin, and Rhonda Wheatley. And you argue that their work offers these new narratives of pleasure. Um, and I thought the cover was like a great invitation into this world or into the world of Afro nostalgia, but also into this idea of regeneration. Um, so how did you decide on the cover of the book and um, how does this uh, express Afro nostalgia? Yeah. So Krista Franklin is actually a Chicago artist. Uh, she's also a very well-known poet. So I actually have been following her work for quite some time. Um, a friend of mine who is a uh, really accomplished art historian uh, kind of pointed me in the direction of Franklin a few years ago. And I've been just, you know, honestly in love with everything that she touches uh, from then on. But I was really kind of interested in um, Krista Franklin because nostalgia is a primary thematic 
and, and her uh, visual work, but it's also, you know, it plays a pretty big role in her poetry um, as well. So just kind of thinking about how she actually engages nostalgia in, in many of the same ways that I've kind of been thinking about it as this um, retreat to kind of Black historical joy, right? Or, or you know, Black historical pleasure. And the um, the piece... Oh, are you okay? <laughs> okay. Um, the piece uh, on the cover is actually called Lush Life. And I just love the cover, love the title, partially because this idea of lush life as sad as this may be, it's so counterintuitive in terms of the way that we normally talk about and think about black life, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, it's the, the cover is, it's a technicolor, it's, it's luxuriant, it's vibrant, it's rich. Uh, so I, I think I've garnered Krista uh, many more fans um, because of the cover of this book. But really, I think it also points to kind of a broader Black feminist imperative of care. <laughs> um, and I, I chose that term kind of regeneration because largely because, because of its um, medical connotation, right? That this idea that after a loss or after an injury, something is able to um, uh, grow back in a, in a new and sometimes even better form. And so I really wanted to kind of play with this idea of the traumatic as, you know, the loss, if you will, but then what comes out of that in maybe a new or better form. And this is something that really is at the heart of the work of the three artists that are featured in that, um, in that chapter, but it really does kind of align with a lot of the, kind of Black feminist work around kind of care and pleasure, you know, thinking about, um, uh, let's see, like Joan Morgan's um, Why We Get Off, right? That kind of talks about like the politics of pleasure, Adrienne Marie Brown, um, Brittany Cooper. So um, that chapter, it was so much fun to write, but I have to say, I felt, (laughs) talk about feeling good. I felt so good writing every bit of that chapter, um, because it really was, um, I think, as you kind of pointed out, uh, just so overwhelmingly focused on, you know, the cultivation of joy and the cultivation of pleasure, especially um, for for Black women. So I, I needed that chapter when I wrote it, and I need it now. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Definitely. I, I love the visuals in the chapter and I loved looking at them and I wanted them to go to an exhibition uh, to see them. Um, was really It was really great. Yeah, I mean, the, the Rhonda Wheatley um, works that I talked about were, you know, those were actually an installation in, in Chicago at the High Park Art Center. And I was, I think I talked about this in the book, but I was teaching a, an honors class at the time. And, you know, college students never get field trips. And so they were really excited to take a field trip. Uh, but we were talking about um, the classes on, on contemporary novels of slavery. And so I actually wanted them to see this exhibit to kind of, you know, understand like, you know, this is what we're kind of talking about in this novel and these novels, but these concepts, these themes have a broader cultural resonance and it's not just in, in kind of the form of the book, if you will, um, but that not all kind of black returns to the past are founded in the traumatic. And so I wanted them to actually see um, Wheatley's exhibit, which is actually pretty interactive too, um, as kind of a counterpoint to that. So it, it was a great experience for them. So, and I do know that April Banks actually has a, uh, currently she has a installation in Los Angeles. I think it's called Justice and Joy. Mm. So she's continuing this work in really amazing ways too. Mm-hmm. I'll have to go see that um, yes. since it's right here. Um, and so in the book, uh, you include these like personal recollections, like laced throughout the text. Um, and so, for example, uh, you talk about in chapter four, which is nostalgic reclamation, you discuss, for example, your childhood growing up in the nation of Islam and how you couldn't eat pork. And, you know, this dovetails, of course, with the theme of the chapter, which is black culinary creativity. And, you know, you look at different chefs like Marcus Samuelson and Bryant Terry. But I also wondered, um, why was it important to you to include these personal moments that you weave throughout the text? Sure. Well, it's really interesting because a lot of people have said that the fourth chapter is like their favorite chapter because it is personal, which I thought was really interesting. I'm like, who really cares that much about my own kind of um, experiences? But I, I wrote about them. So I guess, you know, I was hoping that they would resonate with other people. Um, but I, I feel like food is so personal. And when we think about nostalgia, even in a really conventional sense, you know, what is it that generates nostalgia? And it's, it's usually food and music. Those are kind of the top two, um, uh, things that really kind of have this capacity to transport us, um, to a past. And that past can be personal. That past can be historical in some ways, but it really is kind of an invitation um, to uh, really kind of indulge in this, this um, uh, to indulge in the past. And so that was, that's one of the reasons why it was really important to um, include those personal moments. But I also wanted, I had done so much to kind of talk about 
historical nostalgia in the book. And so I really wanted the food chapter to veer into the personal, um, but then to, to show how those two are, are also intertwined. And so it, it's not just obviously about my own kind of personal food memories, but how those are tied to, you know, my upbringing in the nation of Islam, how that is tied to, um, broader nostalgic ideas about this, you know, I would say largely kind of imagined, um, African past, if you will. Uh, so I wanted to kind of, you know, show how all of those are kind of working together to kind of produce this broader conception of Afro nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that chapter as well. Um, I also, I'm, I love reading about food. And so yeah. <laughs> most people do. <laughs> Definitely. And I really like Marcus Samuelson and Bryant Tear. I have, I have both of their cooking. They're a uh, cookbooks. Oh, really? (laughs) Multiple cookbooks from both of them. So I actually really liked reading the chapter a lot. Oh, I'm I'm happy to hear that. And, you know, um, Terry, you know, he was really just fascinating to write about. And it was also, to to be frank, a lot of fun, uh, just kind of following his work and, and, you know, following the, the recipes and his cookbooks and the way that he suggests. So, you know, he gives you reading, he gives you music, you know, so it almost kind of creates this, you know, broader kind of sensory experience um, as you're kind of working through the various recipes. And so it was really kind of interesting even doing that um, as part of the quote unquote research uh, for for the chapter. So I, I, I'm glad to hear that, you know, some of the fun and some of the kind of energy around that, um, that process came through in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about the researching of the book as well. And so you mentioned that you put together this eclectic arch- archive. Um, and so each chapter gathers a cohort of examples that you use to demonstrate, you know, your, your central concepts and theory. And I wondered kind of how you went about gathering the material. Did you sort of start with the concept and then start to notice it enacted through different texts and work? Or was it kind of serendipity that these examples came together? And I asked this to as someone who just kind of finished writing my own book. And so I think it's really valuable to hear about, you know, other people's processes. Um, sure. How they went about collecting this material. Sure. Well, first of all, congratulations on, on finishing your book. Um, so I'm excited to, to see that when it comes out in the world. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't say that it was serendipity. These are actually, you know, concepts that I had been or ideas I've been thinking about for a really long time. So when I finished Freud Upside Down, I had already been kind of thinking about nostalgia. <laughs> so, um, you know, Freud upside down was making his way in the world. You know, I, I uh, was certainly kind of, well, this is an interesting phenomenon that I don't know if many people talk about, but, you know, by the time the book reaches, you know, the public, if you will, you've been done with it for a little while. And so um, it is quite common, I hear, that you're already on to the next idea when everyone else is kind of just uh, getting introduced to, to the, the one in the book. So 
Um, I have been kind of thinking about nostalgia and I actually wrote an article um, on Marcus Samuelson and and Yes Chef um, and nostalgia was kind of the, I would say it wasn't explicit, but it was certainly like the underlying theme in the, in the, in the article. Um, and I was so invested in that concept and food as we just talked about that. I literally wrote the article in like a month. <laughs> like I was just, I had it pinned up in me and I, I just wrote from there. Um, and then I kind of turned to, uh, an article I had been thinking about on Dave Chappelle's Black Party. So, and that one got published as well. So I published these two pieces and just kind of looking at them together, it was very clear to me that nostalgia was my thing, that this was going to be kind of the central theme of whatever whatever it was I worked on next. And what was really fascinating is that even though I'm a literary scholar, neither of these articles was about literature necessarily. Um, so that's when I knew that I wanted to explore how this idea was kind of coming together and uh, uh, larger kind of uh, cultural registers. And I think it's one of those things that when you have an idea and you then set yourself upon doing a lot of reading and writing and paying attention that um artists works uh you know different kinds of cultural works start emerging or you start thinking about them in a particular way and that is honestly how you know the book came together i just really started kind of i guess being really attentive to kind of what was um already extant in terms of kind of you know black cultural works but then also starting to um, dig a little deeper in the works of people who, you know, I knew were kind of exploring this as um, at least uh, an ideation in their own um, art. So like I mentioned, Krista Franklin um, is someone whose uh, visual works that I've you know been really um, attracted to for, for quite some time. But that then led me to Krista Franklin as a poet and finding even um, more material there, if you will, um, that really spoke to what I was trying to do in the book. So I would say that, you know, perhaps maybe, you know, it was part serendipity, but I also think it was part just really wanting to be a bit of a curator in some respects and really bring together this body of Black aesthetic cultural productions that were really invested in alternatives to the traumatic. And that's what really kind of led me to um, the various pieces in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so speaking of that, like the, this has kind of been a theme that you've been kind of talking about the, you know, the, it's like feeling good, the alternatives to the traumatic. And I found that as a reader, um, who is a black woman and an African-American woman, um, I found the book to be very generative of these good feelings. And you kind of also said this too, and we talked about chapter three, it was the chapter that, you know, that you needed and, and things like that. And so I was wondering if I, maybe when you're writing the book or even now and seeing the reception, if you thought about, I guess, the audience for the book 
and how the book would also kind of generate these these very feelings that you're describing. Like in a way, I found the book to also be very therapeutic in producing <laughs> these good feelings. That, well, that's good to hear. I mean, it's it's nice to know that sometimes when you know a project starts to feel a little self indulgent, and you just hope that it resonates with the outside world, um, that it's actually doing the job, um, doing that job. So that's that's really nice to hear, and I appreciate that. Um, that insight into the book and what it was like for you to, to kind of engage with it as a reader. Um, I would say that, no, this is not a book where I was overly conscious of audience, except that it was clear to me that I was not the only person who was wanting something else. Right. Um, and this just kind of emerges in various you know, popular cultural snippets that I would, you know, come across. So um, in the book, I think I talked about the uh, NPR um, interview or program with Neil Drumming in which he, you know, was talking about his desire for a parallel narrative, I think is what he called it, right? So something else to like offset just the persistent, you know, spectacles of Black death that were just, it, it seemed like it was kind of flooding our social media and our images on the screen. Um, but just this kind of, I would say, weariness of being overwhelmed with stories of Black violence and that thinking that this can't be all that there is. And you know, there's this line that I refer to, I think it's in the last chapter um, by playwright Susan Laurie Parks, in which is something I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, you know, is uh, being black or does being black mean that you're always blue or something like that? Um, so this idea that it's trauma rather than joy, that's our birthright in some respects. And so I really wanted to play around with you know, the idea that there is this parallel narrative, that there is something else out there. And even if it's not going back to kind of the Zadie Smith comment, you know, historically available to us in ways that um, we're able to kind of readily recognize, we can certainly see how it has been invented, right? in popular culture in particular. And so for example, you know, just going back to the comment that you made about Gone with the Wind, right? That, you know, this idea that there isn't a place for you in that history, so to speak. Well, you know what? Maybe not, right? But when I look at something like Bridgerton, for example, you know, and obviously this is a fictional work, but let's think for a moment about what engenders, you know, that kind of creation. Right? Why, why do we need a Bridgerton? Why, did, why was it so popular? Why did it speak? I mean, I could not, when it first came out, there was not a day on social media that wasn't like just talking about all of the drama and all of the um, kind of hoopla, if you will, around the series. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a Shondaland pr production, if you will, but I think it also points to this kind of broader desire that I was kind of speaking to earlier for 
a different kind of narrative to emerge for Black people to kind of show up in these historical spaces um, in ways that are not subjugated or subservient, right? But in ways that are aesthetically beautiful and powerful and intriguing and interesting and multidimensional. And I think that, um, so with that, I, I wasn't thinking necessarily about, you know, this audience for Afro nostalgia in that way, but I believe that what I was aware of, at least at the time, was that there was this um, want for a different kind of narrative. And, you know, that's what I was really hoping to kind of call together in the book. So you, you mentioned this too, um, just, just previously. And I, so I was going to say, I follow you on Twitter. Um, and I see some of your tweets that make note of how Afro nostalgia is alive and well in contemporary black life. And so maybe Bridgerton um, would be an example of this, but I was wondering if you see other ways in which um, Afro nostalgia is working in contemporary culture. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, you know, I, I feel like I should have, um, referenced my or gone back to my Twitter <laughs> to see like what was I talking about when I when I said that. But um I, I believe that, you know, I made I've made mention of that or kind of brought attention to it where whenever I see this really um conscious cultivation of black historical joy, the kind of conscious retreat to a black historical past in ways that are meant to engender good feelings. Um, so Bridgerton is obviously one example. Um, in other contexts, I've talked about, you know, Sylvie's Love, which was, you know, the, the movie um, that was done, uh, I think it was for Amazon. But, you know, even reading about, you know, the, the kind of critical commentary around that film, which is a period piece, and you don't get a lot of black period pieces, just by the way. You certainly don't get a lot of them that are truly and solely a love story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that, you know, there's not this kind of um, traumatic backdrop. You know, it's not centered around some um, historical, historically tragic event, right? It's just a love story. And I have to say that when I saw it the first time, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop through the entire thing. Like I couldn't even fully enjoy it the first time I saw it because I was thinking, oh no, something's going to happen <laughs> to either one of them just because of the period in which they existed and because I had become so socialized to um, watching or reading, you know, black people existing in the past that in which there was, in which their demise or them being the victim of some, you know, terrible form of violence was completely inevitable. Right. And so to be able to kind of just sit and enjoy this, love story set in the you know 1960s was such a rare and odd and beautiful experience i had to watch it again so that i could actually fully embrace what was happening 
um, because there, there was not another shoe to drop, if you will. Um, there was just the love story that was presented to us. And I, I think that we're deserving of that. And I think that we all want to see a little bit more of that um, because it also does a lot in the way of depicting Black folks as fully human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we, we all know this to be true, but we just don't see it represented widely in a way that I know that I would like to see. Um, so for me, that's when I say that kind of nostalgia, Afro nostalgia is alive and well is because I am really wanting to kind of highlight, um, you know, movies and films and books and, you know, experiences like this that really do show that, um, you know, black folks are, are capable of experiencing, you know, the full range of, of emotions and that we have access to those and that, um, you know, they mean something to us. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so to, to conclude, I guess, the interview, um, I was going to ask, do you have any projects on the horizon now that Afro nostalgia is out into the world? And I realize that we're coming out of a pandemic. So, you know, maybe these are, you know, <clears throat> you know projects that are very much on the horizon, but or just any anything you have, uh, you know, yeah. coming up, I guess, that you're working on. Yeah, I mean, well, right now I am finishing up um, an essay that we're writing as part of a a special journal issue. Uh, So it's uh, Habiba Ibrahim and I are editing a special issue of the South Atlantic Quarterly. And the theme is Black Temporality and Times of Crisis. So um, coming out of the pandemic, it couldn't be more timely, I guess. Um, but we're really excited about that. So we're wrapping that up now um, and some amazing essays from, from really great contributors for that piece. Um, so that'll be out in April 2022. Um, I have a few pieces that are currently under review um, that ironically talk about leisure, idleness, and reclamation of Black time. Um, I feel like I'm not getting a ton of rest, but you know, <laughs> but at least I'm doing a lot of research about, about leisure and rest. So I don't know if that counts for something. So, um, those are kind of out in the world right now. And, uh, other than that, I think, you know, I have some inklings of an idea of another book project, but I'm also really, um, kind of enjoying, you know, not writing a book right now. <laughs> so, and allowing myself to kind of just be open to what comes next. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so we'll look out for those projects and, uh, uh, the South Atlantic quarterly, the one that will be coming out, I guess, most, uh, most closely. Yep. Um, Oh, great. Um, so I've been talking to Dr. Badia Ahad Lagardi, who is the author of the book Afro Nostalgia, Feeling Good in Contemporary Black Culture, published by the University of Illinois Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it, sharing it with us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's great speaking with you as well. Thank you so much for having me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 